Hi guys, I'm Chris. And I'm Mike. And welcome back to this week's No Limits, a Mitrab podcast. So how you doing? I'm good, man. Watched a couple of movies and documentaries to get ready for this pod, so kind of excited about it. A lot of good things to recommend to the listeners at the end of this one. How about you? What's up? Yeah, this pod was a lot easier to prep for than uh, reading half a book and in-depth analysis, trying to come up with themes, you know? I like when we do these. Yeah. Well, you had a good idea for next month, the movie review, something related to executive power. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I forget what it is, though, right now. I have it written down. I remember what it was. Yeah. Cool. We'll announce that a little closer to November when we're going to roll out executive power in a couple of weeks. Yes, yes, yes. Cool. Well, um, today's episode, as you hopefully heard last week, is related to one of the most well-known special operations missions in history, uh, hostage rescue, performed by the Israeli Defense Forces back in 1976. To give a little uh, Twitter shout-out here, I first learned about this event, Operation Thunderbolt, from Jack Carr. He posted about it. Yes, he he posted about it back in late June or early July, which was the anniversary of the operation. And he had a picture of a vehicle in the back of a C-130 with a bunch of soldiers kind of hanging off of it. And he's like, anybody know why Israeli special forces with a Mercedes limousine were in the back of this plane in July 1976? Oh, I remember that post. I remember that post, yeah. Yep. And so I started reading about it. I was like, man, this is pretty cool. And then when we read Separation of Power... And Rap is dropping into Baghdad in these helicopters carrying a Mercedes limousine impersonating Saddam's troops. I was like, man, that's what Jack Carr was talking about. And I started putting the pieces together. And this uh, this mission really, really reminded me of, of the book a little bit. So. Yeah, I, I sort of came from it the opposite, whereas you had mentioned it while we were recording or while we were prepping for our uh, separation of power episode. You're like, all right, well, let's let's go read let's look up some stuff and then there's a you know documentary there's been two dramatizations of this and let's see you know what you th- you were sort of asking me do i think that uh you know ask the listeners as well do you think that there's any sort of inspiration that vince would have drawn from this and i, I think clearly you know once once we get into it you'll see that obviously he probably is inspired by a lot of different missions but it, there's a lot of par- there's a lot of parallels between this mission and directly the you know our favorite mission in separation of power. So it was, it's pretty cool to do a deep dive, look at some history. So yeah. yeah, excited to talk about that today. Let's do it. And before we get going, just a huge thank you to our patrons. As we've yes. been saying for a while now, we could not keep this podcast going without you guys. You are the reason for weekly shows and to thank you. We're running the October book giveaway. So next week on the show, we'll be announcing the winner. Gives you some time to sign up, become a patron, help out with the show. And if you are the winner, you can pick a signed copy of any of these six books. Executive Power, Extreme Measures, Pursuit of Honor, Act of Treason, Protect and Defend, or The Survivor. Yes, and we just need to remind you that we're pretty excited. We're going to be able to donate all of uh, the next two months um, Patreon dues or or funds to the prostate cancer foundation so you know if you sign up for that now you could get into that donation we've also we're happy to say that we're we're gonna we have contacted the prostate cancer foundation um told them about our donation they've actually agreed to come on uh, to the podcast next month and tell us about their long-standing uh partnership to bring cutting-edge treatments and um and prostate cancer clinic clinical trials to many different veterans so we're, we're excited about that um we're also going to be able to do in the next month uh, interview with our next philanthropic uh, endeavor with Operation Paperback. So yes, stay stay tuned for those those podcasts. We're we're excited to share those with you. Yeah, we're really happy to give back. So we just hope the Patreon funding can continue to cover our operating costs. But beyond that, we are going to be giving back to causes related to veterans issues and both reading so uh we found a really good charity for next year so that the patreon giving can continue (laughs) 
let's get into it then. Let's talk Operation Thunderbolt and try to draw parallels between the real-life special operation completed and conducted by the Israeli Defense Forces and what Vince wrote about in Separation of Power. Right. So I was thinking we, we could break this episode into three parts. One, we recap, obviously, you know, our inspiration from this month. We're talking about Separation of Power, the book we just reviewed. Recap that Baghdad scene. Uh, next, we could sort of recap the actual Operation Thunderbolt, Operation Entebbe, you know, our research, what we did into it. Maybe we can, you know, obviously discuss the parallels we, we think we see between the two. And then also Mike and I did a little bit of a, not a deep dive, but a medium dive into a couple of different movies, both documentary and dr- dramatizations that cover this topic. Um, and we're going to give you our, you know, what we liked, what we didn't like, zero-sum game. So, yeah. Yeah, and I guess probably a good idea to give a spoiler alert. I mean, it's history, so... <laughs> if, yeah, if it's historical fact, I don't know if you could still call it a spoiler alert. So, obviously, the films we get to at the end, we recommend. But like any good historical narrative, knowing the ending doesn't change an enjoyable film or the yeah. art and enjoyment of it. So, even if you know the mission, it's still really great to... We're not spoiling any of the films because they are still in themselves great works of art that we recommend, but hopefully you'll go into them being informed about some of the real history that we were able to, to uncover. Yeah. It's like in Argo, you, you know that they were going to succeed, but exactly. Argo was still a good movie. Or I remember watching uh, rogue one and like, after like two of the people died, it clicked. I was like, Oh wait, everyone's going to die. Cause I remembered that line from like, you know, episode four where it was like, everyone died trying to get these plans. But you know the plans still get out there, right? Yeah, they don't exactly. Fail at communicating exactly. the plans. No, so it's it still, it still was a good movie. So that that that's our point, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, um, separation of power. Let me kick us off with the opening of chapter forty-three. Uh, that's pretty much where the mission is is happening. So Rap and the crew have uncovered that Saddam Hussein in Iraq is only months away from having operational nuclear weapons. Colonel Gray is brought in, and the president only wants to go with this risky mission if he can get Rap involved. Well, here's Rap kicking off the mission. So Vince writes, quote, The four helicopters knifed their way through the cooling desert air like a snake slithering across the sand. They were not flying in a straight route. Instead, a predetermined course had been plugged into the Chinook's advanced navigation systems, allowing them to avoid all villages, major roads, and Iraqi radar sites. Cruising at just 100 feet off the desert floor, with only 300 feet between each chopper, and flying at speeds of over 120 miles per hour, there was no room for error. I just like that description of the choppers flying. He gets the distances between them, distances off the ground, and how they're avoiding detection flying over the Iraqi desert. So I love that stuff. Yeah, I think like even from that little passage, we could draw a bunch of parallels to op- like what 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 went on in Operation Thunderbolt. But we'll save that exactly. Later. We'll save that for a minute. But, but we we have an almost similar description of real life helicopters doing that across the sea airplanes. instead of the desert. Yeah, uh, airplanes. Yep, yep. But so this wasn't their first mission. There was this wasn't their first idea, right? They they had, they had been in the um, situation room. They had been or on, at the Pentagon. The president flood and his advisors had been figuring out a way how to get to the president or how to get to Iraq and, and get to, you know, these nukes. Initially, it was just bombing you know, the idea of bombing it in uh, using an even more, you know, deep penetration bomb. You know, they could fly, uh, you know, airmen across or they could drop boots on the ground. And then finally, they come up with this harebrained crazy yeah. scheme using knowledge that they know that Saddam's son and Saddam himself ride around Iraq in these white limos. And, you know, our theme from last time was you have to, um, decisiveness that that's the word, sorry. By using the knowledge of these white limos and being decisive, they're going to take advantage of that and sort of masquerade around as Saddam or, or his son, you know, they're coming in, they got to quickly Drop the uh, the the white Mercedes limo. Get in. The bombing is supposed to be coordinated to give them cover. Get the nuke, 
and then get out. And all while yeah. our boy Mitch Rapp is playing none other than the, you know uh, Saddam's son, right? So. Yep. Well, before they drop off the limo, because I think, Chris, you're going to see a parallel when we get to Operation Thunderbolt. Here's the description of the landing. So the Mercedes sedan was secured to the floor of the chopper with four high test tie downs. One of the Delta operators was sitting behind the wheel, ready to back it out as soon as they hit the ground. The three gunners were all wearing flight helmets with night vision goggles and comlinks so they could tell the pilot and the navigator what they saw. He couldn't see out the window, but he knew what was going on. It had all been covered in the briefing. The Air Force STS team had prepped the landing strip in the parking lot of the abandoned factory and set up four equally spaced infrared strobe lights that could not be seen by the naked eye, but through the night vision goggles, and they were bright as a lighthouse's beacon. All four behemoths would touch down within seconds of each other. So in Operation Thunderbolt, dealing with the lights on the runway at nighttime in Uganda, Central Africa, is going to be a big issue. So we see Vince here having an Air Force advanced team light the landing zone for the choppers and just wait till we talk about Thunderbolt. We're going to see a team prepared to light the runway in the middle of the night. And that's going to be a big, big part of the success of the operation. Yeah, Vince goes on. I, I think there's I'm, I'm blanking on which actual it might be. Act of War. I forget which one it is, but he he uses these these little like cube, uh, infrared strobes pop up yeah. in a couple of the the, the stories, and and I'm thinking yeah. of one scene where I think, Mitch is in Afghanistan, and uh, the Taliban come, and he has to he only has one of these, and they run on like a bat like a small little like nine volt battery or something like that. Like this is pretty cool technology. Yeah, I, it must be one of the like more recent books, but yeah, this is the kind of thing that that's going to pop up throughout you know various missions that Mitrav goes on. Yep. This is almost like the ideal situation that I'm guessing Operation Thunderbolt would have wanted done, would have wanted yeah. to do instead of what they had to do. Yeah. Because just a few more details on that. They are landing at an abandoned chemical weapons facility that the U.S. had already bombed out. And so this was kind of like a safe zone that they knew was empty. And it's 20 minutes outside Baghdad. So... They, Vince writes yeah. that they get the they get the uh, limo out of the helicopter in five seconds, and the Delta boys are ready to go. And one of the guys says, "You know, twenty minutes to Baghdad. Baghdad, then the real fun starts." Well, in the mission, they're not going to have a twenty minute drive oh, from no. the landing zone. They're going to come in hot almost. So, little difference there. But you're right about you mentioned rap and our theme of you know you got to have confidence. You got to know your enemy know yourself and you have to show this confidence. So Rap is wondering what advice does he give some of the guys he's with right before they land? And he tells them, be bold, be arrogant. And if anybody gets in the way, threaten to kill them. This is the way Uday would do it. He had learned from his father and young Uday had bested him. Saddam had no heart, but it seemed at least there was some logic to his use of force. It was used to rule, to keep his subjects cowering. And so Rap knows if you go in there and you mean business and you look like you're playing the role. The soldiers will cower and let you pass right through. They'll give you whatever you want. So that's the mission here. Yeah. And it works. They get in. A couple of different guard posts let them through. They can drive right up to the hospital and secret bunker. And Rap's disguise works so well, he gets them to take him down into the bunker and let him leave with the nuke. Yeah, all in all, the pretty successful mission. Besides, I think they have one little hiccup with the, uh, the bombing starts yeah. too soon. But... This is sort of the ideal situation that you would want to come in, obviously have highly trained people flying your your helicopters, drop at a location that's sort of out of sight. They come into town, they play the part, they act like they own the place, they get in, get out, you know? Get it done. That's it. Now, not quite what happens in Operation Thunderbolt. Yeah, let's get to it. Let's get to it. So this is a real mission, obviously, that took place in uh, 1976, in late June and early July. It all starts with a Air France Flight 139 from Tel Aviv that was going to Paris with a stop-off in Athens, right? In all of our findings, the, the Athens at the time was sort of a very leaky in, in terms of their security. Was there, I believe there was strikes going on, so 
yep. they had they didn't necessarily have like the top notch people at the um, you know manning the the metal detectors and stuff like that an x-ray very inattentive so that allowed the people from the popular front for the liberation of palestine to get four people uh was it four or six i think it was a four on the plane four on the plane if I'm not mistaken the two, two so there were the two, two germans, germans. They, they were like a gang or like a German crew that got in bed with the Palestinians. Basically freedom fighters, they thought they were. They called themselves like a Che Guevara group. So they oh, had more okay. of this like liberation ideology. And so that's why the Palestinian cause really played with them. I think it was more of this communist revu- revolutionary flair. I couldn't find much on... Yeah. I tried to like look more into them, but I couldn't find much on them. Yeah. One of the movies makes it look like one of the guys is a bookseller. I don't know if that's in the dramatization because booksellers are always communists <laughs> in Frankfurt, <laughs> Germany or Munich, wherever they are. But um, yeah. Anyway, these two Germans get in bed with the Palestinians and the PLFP to uh, to hijack the flight. There's a really good. Actually, all the films, even the two dramatizations we're going to talk about. We had one more old school from uh, I believe it was made. 1977. Yeah. I think it was 77. I think it was right after um, yeah. the events of this. They made a film about it, which was actually really powerful. And then even the more modern one from 2018, I thought pulled off the hijacking of the plane scene really well. Don't anyone speak. Don't move. This is a live grenade. The pin is out. If anyone tries anything, if anyone touches me, I've only to drop it and I won't hesitate to do it. I will shoot. <laughs> Everybody quiet. Don't anybody move. Sit down. I said sit down. Sit down. They pull the pins on grenades. Uh, They pull out their handguns. The lady gets everyone to move all the passengers to one section of the plane to watch them collect their documents, passports, and ID cards, which are going to play a role later on of why the terrorists want the passports of the hostages. Meanwhile, another guy barges into the cockpit and basically tells the pilots where to go. Attention, everyone. Attention. We represent the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. The Che Guevara Group, Gaza Brigade. We're now in complete control of this flight. I am your new commander. What should we do? This plane is renamed Haifa. You are our prisoners. Follow our orders and no one will be killed. Panic and you'll all be killed. They first land in Libya. And they're hoping that Muammar Gaddafi would give them some refuge and let them stay at the airport and be an ally. Turns out Gaddafi says, what the hell are you doing here? Let's them refuel, but tells them they can't stay. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to get caught up in all that. And while they're in Benghazi, a passenger fakes a miscarriage. And I found out this was real from history, not just in the films, but one of the passengers claims she's four months pregnant, she's feeling sick, and she thinks she's having a miscarriage. And the terrorists actually, you know, being these revolutionaries, they make sure she's not a Jew. And once they realize she is not Israeli, they show some sympathy and let her get off the plane. Well, the terrorists just committed one of their first mistakes because they make they make a series they of make mistakes a yeah. that's going to lead to their downfall yeah you know one of the movies though makes it because they do sympathize and they don't want to hurt people yes they believe in their cause of palestinian liberation mm-hmm. but one of the the newest movie really made it look like they were also human you know trying right. to look out for the passengers really you almost felt they didn't want to hurt them well why would you take them hostage and open a grenade on a live plane if you don't want to hurt anybody you're kind of crazy but anyway they let her go and uh she ends up getting debriefed by scotland yard the british are going to get some good intel on how many uh terrorists there are their descriptions and that's going to play a big role in organizing the the takedown because the british obviously share that intelligence with Mossad. right and so they originally they went to libya because because of gaddafi and his sympathy for them but was that their what what was their ultimate original destination i was it uganda it's kind of murky but all signs point to the plan was to get to uganda in the end anyway 
Okay. And Libya was either to just refuel, that was their game plan the whole time, or it was a diversion to make it look like nobody was willing to take them. But it turns out there's pretty solid evidence that Idi Amin, the dictator of Uganda with a very terrible history of coming to power in the country, slaughtering, some say, up to 300,000 of his countrymen when he seized power, uh, known as one of the worst dictators throughout history, essentially, in, in sub-Saharan Africa. There's pretty strong evidence that the Palestinians had him in their in his, in their pocket the whole time. The Palestinians had crews armed, ready to booby trap and um, control the airport in Entebbe. Amin was in it from the beginning. He tried to sell the world on this narrative of, I told the Palestinians to come here so that I could work out peace between right. the two. It, it's more, it, the evidence does point to him having some pre-planning. <clears throat> the documentary on Najia made it seem that he actually was just pissed off at Israel because of they wouldn't help him with yeah. one of his you know raids that he wanted to do, right? Maybe, but I also think it was an arms sale deal that right. went south. Yeah, and also like he, he wanted some you know, weapons yeah. and that they wouldn't give it to him. Yeah, so after that incident, which was just four years prior, uh, the the Israelis backed out of an arms sale. He he wanted some really heavy equipment, and I believe the Israelis found out he was buying it to 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 hurt Kenya, who, yeah, which exactly. is a Western ally, and so they pulled out of the deal. And Amin closed Israeli diplomatic missions in Uganda. He pulled out of any business dealings because there were a lot of architecture companies and engineering firms working on uh, Ugandan infrastructure. Yeah, they're actually the ones who built the airport. And that's, yep, that's another one of the terrorist mistakes. They hold the hostages in an airport that was built by an Israeli architecture firm. And so the Israelis have the blueprints the the whole time. Exactly. So that was another misstep. But, um, yeah, so... Idi Amin got, was mad at the Israelis, but here's something interesting. When he met the hostages, which we're going to talk quite a bit about, the first reaction when some of the older Israelis saw him, they cheered. They really thought he welcomed right. them to his country and he liberated them and kind of convinced the Palestinians to end their game. And so they cheered for him thinking he was still an Israeli ally, people who hadn't read up on the most recent history of him closing the missions and kicking Israel out of Uganda. Yeah. And so there, not just these four terrorists are there, but there are other Palestinians that come and join. Um, and they're in the old terminal yep. at this uh, Entebbe airport. Initially, they they start with a um, ultimatum, right? Yeah. And so they want a bunch of people, to, specifically two different uh, people released from prison. Do you remember the names of the people that... Well, it's 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 larger than just that. Okay. There are two main ones that they want. One is the archbishop. Right, the archbishop. Yep. Yeah, he sold weapons and was involved in a lot of trafficking. And another Japanese guy who was on the Palestinian cause, but they were being held either in Israel or Israel's allies. I think a lot of them were in France. That's why they chose an Air France flight, because France was holding a lot of these detainees. And so the terrorists initially demand... To release 53 terrorists held in the West and $5 million from the French government for reparations. And it's a 48-hour deadline. So I believe this was on Tuesday and they're giving them till Thursday or else they say they're going to start killing hostages. And at this point, they've already they've already separated the Jews from the yeah. Westerners, right? Yeah, this was what most have said was the most emotional moment of the whole thing. Not even the fear of being taken and seeing the weapons waved in your face. Most people, even including Shimon Perez, who was the defense minister, trying to convince the Israeli cabinet to take action this whole time, he even said it was the most emotional experience when the Jews were called out by name and the terrorists had taken their passports. And apparently this is a a huge word in the Hebrew language and Israeli consciousness, separating or the separating. It's a word that evokes very deep uh, scars and wounds from the Holocaust. And so the Ugandan soldiers broke a hole in the wall and in some closet in a broken open wall, they hid, I think it was close to 100, yeah. 70 or 80 of the Israeli passengers in a, in a small cramped room in a broken wall and called them out one by one. And everyone quickly knew 
Jew is being separated from Gentiles, and that was not. And some of the passengers, actually one old lady, even had the tattoos from a concentration camp. A lot of them survived or had family members that survived concentration camps, and here they are reliving that experience in Uganda. Wow, that's that's crazy. To, to be able to, to get out of that and then to be put into this right. is, is, is insane and sickening. Yep. I, I forgot to mention this earlier. One thing I thought was interesting from the one documentary was there was on the flight some high-ranking Israeli military official or, or political official. I forget which one. But he had like his card on him. And they knew that if they had seen them, then he probably would, they'd kill him right away or do something bad to him. So they actually, he, his family ate and chewed up his identification card. Wow. So that way he wouldn't be able to, you know, be, and then they, they were able to quickly put like the wads of paper into a Coke can. I thought that was really cool. You know, like just yeah. like think to, the thing to do that. Like even just the emotions of hiding your identity. I, so that's something that in the movies, I think, I didn't like one movie has the older one, the 1977 one has the scene where two Jewish like teenagers both hide their their um their Star of David necklaces so that the terrorists won't see them. And while it's powerful, I think the thing about like hiding your identity with chewing up the, the ID in the Coke can was much more real and crazy. But right. it was like a quick scene in the movie to uh, kind of bring out that same idea. They're going to check their passports and see that they're Israeli, right? So true. Yeah. But then the modern one took it a little too far because it was the it was probably the most glaring a historical moment they actually accused one of the passengers of being an israeli spy and kind of beat him and took him away and interrogated him and bloodied him up where in real life i don't think the the terrorists were actually that cruel in terms of physical abuse and punishment to the passengers but the movie of course needed you know a beating or some blood and gore and so they actually beat the crap out of this guy they suspect to me, that was a little bit forced just for the drama, but what can you do? Yeah, that was that was interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, the deadline's coming, so yes. they have until Thursday. Throughout this whole time, uh, if this was one of the craziest scenes. Idi Amin keeps coming to make appearances, and he almost acts as if he's the savior of the people. He comes in and announces in this one really just very creepy scene in the old movie he starts laughing the whole time he's laughing welcome to uganda i am his excellency field marshal dr Idi Amin. dada appointed by god almighty to be your savior and he's saying shalom over and over shalom shalom he's laughing at one point he grabs one of the young little boys and just laughs like it's this weird laugh of joy he's trying to tell them I'm going to free you. And then he's, he's scaring them. It's like these psychological games. You could tell how messed up he is. And meanwhile, he has control of a couple of hundred soldiers at his fingertips right there guarding the building. And it just shows how mental he is. And I'm like, if you're not scared by, you know, Germans, two German hijackers and a group of Palestinians separating Jew from Gentile. Now you got to worry about a crazy off the rails dictator saying shalom to you with a funny laugh, like telling you I'm appointed by God to be your savior. For those of you who do not know me, I'm Phil Marshall, president for life, Dr. Idi Amin Dada, ruler of Uganda. I want to welcome you all to Uganda. I shall do everything within my power to make your stay a pleasant one here. I have arranged with the Palestinians <laughs> to have you removed from the plane to these more comfortable surroundings. I will provide food and other needs the best way possible. I want to conclude this whole episode quickly. The Palestinians are fair and just people. I myself, when visiting Damascus, saw how well they treated the Jews there. I went to a synagogue. <laughs> so make yourself comfortable here. But please, and this is very important. This is very important. Do not try to escape. Do not try to escape. 
as the Palestinians have wired explosives all around the buildings. Huh? This is very important. In the meantime, look at me as, as your host. <laughs> I shall arrange for your release as soon as possible. Huh? <laughs> look at Uganda as your home. <laughs> Shalom, shalom. <laughs> right, so for for this exercise, because this is Idi Amin, I, I rewatched parts of The Last King of Scotland, which is obviously, you know, a movie about him. And, you know, the, the title of that movie, The Last King of Scotland, is, you know why it's called that, right? I actually don't remember it very much. Oh, because well. he just had a, he just liked to call himself titles, like, you like you just yeah. read he just would give himself titles. Yeah. so like uh because in the movie um obviously played by james mcavoy is the scottish a doctor and th- good thing he's scottish because he has a problem with the english at the moment so he loves scotland and so he just decides like oh, does scotland have a king anymore so, uh, I'm, I'm gonna be the king of scotland so he just he just had a knack or Jeez. like a habit of giving himself these crazy titles that movie was is really good i highly recommend it um okay. There actually is a there. This this uh, it is a portion of the movie. This whole Entebbe operation oh, really? Thunderbolt is is in it very briefly referenced. Yeah, but it's interesting this dynamic between this doctor and this crazy dictator. So yeah, well, thankfully behind the scenes, the French government is working to make an arrangement because being an Air France flight, there are a lot of French nationals on the plane. And they do successfully negotiate the release of 47 French passengers. And that could include the pilot and the crew because they are French and not Israeli. Well, the pilot rallies his crew and says, guys, this is our plane. This is our business. And they take a stand and decide to stay in showing solidarity with the Jewish passengers. Uh, But at least 47 uh, others are released. They are sent off. Obviously, they get debriefed immediately for what information they can tell about where they're being held, blueprints of the airport, if anything's been changed, what the conditions are, how many soldiers, etc. And so that's another time that the Israelis get critical, critical intelligence to be able to plan any sort of rescue mission. But they only have 24 hours, essentially. So the French passengers come home. People quickly realize none of the Jews were released. They know exactly what's going on here. Yeah, and so uh, they fly home to France, and this whole time, what are you going to do with the deadline coming to a close? And the big question is, do, do the Israelis break longstanding tradition and decide to negotiate with terrorists? And meanwhile, this was highlighted in, in, in the documentary, that you have the family of these people like raging to... Yeah. You need to negotiate. You need to negotiate. You need to negotiate. You need to negotiate. And ultimately, they decide not to negotiate, right? Yeah, I think it was uh, Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin was very against it at first. But when they're getting down to the wire, and the families actually storm into, I believe it was his office. They storm into his office. They protest. They overthrow guards. And they say, you must negotiate. These are lives we're talking about. In the end... I think you could say they caved and decided to negotiate, but one thing they did is they had a Israeli general who trained in Uganda. He actually trained some of Idi Amin's forces. He was on good personal terms with him, so they tried to get him on the phone, and it turns out this was true. Somebody had the idea to play to his ego, and he said, I know him. I know he's an egomaniac. So on the phone, he tries to convince him, hey, we don't want to negotiate with the terrorists, but you can get the upper hand here. You and the Ugandan army can take control of the situation. Why are you being played by six Palestinians? They shouldn't control you and your decisions. And they actually tell Amin, hey, you know, you can come out on top of this. You might even win the Nobel Peace Prize if you decide to free the hostages because your soldiers outnumber the Palestinians. And Amin's like, the Palestinians wired the place. They're not in control of me. I can control my own destiny. But ultimately, that conversation gets Amin and the terrorists to agree to extend the deadline. Right. Till Sunday. 
news. Good news. I have gotten the Palestinians to agree to extend the deadline on negotiations for three more days until Sunday, July 4th. Negotiations have failed up to now because of Israeli stubbornness. But I continue to try. I go now to Mauritius, to the Organization of African Unity, to take up the plight of the Israeli hostages. You all know I want to help them. But their position is very dangerous unless the Israeli government accepts the terms of the Palestinians. I'm even using the offices of my good Israeli friend, Colonel Barliv, to help them. I beg your pardon, President Amin. Madam, what do you do? Do? I... Well, I, I, I'm just a grandmother, but I... I am His Excellency Al-Hajij, Field Marshal, Dr. Idi Amin Dada, holder of the Victoria Cross, DSO, MC, ruler of the state of Uganda, and appointed by God Almighty to be your savior. And this is what allows, the whole time, obviously, the military intelligence has been trying to think of a plan, trying to think of a plan, trying to think of a plan. And it's this extending of the deadline that really allows them to come up with a viable option that there's never going to be able to, you know, diplomatically, you know, politically release the prisoners. So we have to come up with a plan. It's Perez, right? Perez was the guy. Um, yeah, and the defense minister. He was waiting. And at the, at the time, one of the head people who were involved was Netanyahu. Yoni, yeah, Netanyahu. Yoni Netanyahu is going to lead the mission. I don't know if he was involved in the planning aspects. But Shimon Perez, as defense minister, is really pushing Rabin in the cabinet to approve some sort of rescue operation. He doesn't care what it is. And eventually... One of the advisors say, we don't have any viable plans. And he says, well, give me the plan you don't have yet. (laughs) And that's when they say, well, we got something cooking, but it's kind of a risk. And Perez is uh, he's all in on it. And he immediately brings it to uh, the prime minister in the cabinet and they make mock ups of the situation and having the blueprints from the Israeli firm and having the released hostages tell you where everyone's being held and where they're stationed they're able to complete a mock-up and remember they only have till sunday 8 a.m so we're down to less than three full days yoni netanyahu is is tapped and he had some experience uh he is the younger brother of or i I forget if he was older or younger of bb netanyahu the current prime minister and long-standing prime minister yeah so this is what we now know is codename Operation Thunderbolt, where they're going to take C1, uh, C-130s that have to travel 2,500 miles, sort of using the similar tactic that Mitrap used. They know that there's these black Mercedes that the Ugandan generals and Idi Amin drive around in. Again, they know that if you just act the the part and that they will let you through, you know, that gets very common to just be have, you know, someone show up to do an inspection and they just drive on through. So they're going to use that to their advantage. They also know that they're in uh, there's two terminals. They're in the old terminal. So the actual runway is, you know, a little bit of a distance away from where they would have to, you know, mount an attack. The plan is to land. Originally, they're not sure if the runway is even going to be lit, which is kind of yeah. like freaking crazy. This guy, this pilot, just is willing to land land the C one thirty blind. One plane is going to land, drop the black Mercedes. Meanwhile, there's other C one thirties that are carrying, I think, two hundred or two hundred fifty more support people yep. that are going to stay behind. And the the goal is to drive on up, take the take the place by force and release the hostages. The key to the three-pronged attack 
is the first column's ability to reach the terminal with the element of surprise still intact. Because seconds can mean the difference between a successful mission and the slaughter of the hostages. Inside the terminal, no matter what the provocation, do not use your hand grenades. Rely on your weapon. Fire short bursts. And once control is established, hold your fire to a minimum. Well, that's all. In one hour, we'll have a dress rehearsal. Yanni will answer any questions. Sammy, uh, this is a lot like the Sabina rescue at the Tel Aviv airport. Now, as I see it, the problem will be identifying the hijackers from the hostages instantly. Right. So we've prepared identikits on each of the terrorists. The data comes from over 100 debriefings that intelligence ran on the freed hostages in Paris and from our agents in Antibi. Study these faces carefully. Get to know them by reflex. The terrorists must be recognized instantly. If they have time to turn on the hostages, our whole mission will be a disaster. Yeah. And thinking back, let's start drawing parallels here to the Mitch Rapp story. When they land the helicopters, these guys set up the infrared, uh, you know, night vision sensors to see the landing zone. Well, the Israelis were ready in case the runway lights were off. Uh, they had lights that they were going to plant along the runway. And so what happened was they found out a British Airways flight was scheduled to land in the middle of the night simply for refueling and then continue on. And they knew by protocol the runway lights would stay on for 15 minutes after that British Airways flight. They also saw this as a good chance to confuse any radar, which they were probably trying to jam anyway, but just in case. If they knew one plane was landing, maybe they can slip in behind it. So within a few minutes of this British Airways plane coming down, the first C-130 lands and the runway lights are still on. Just in case, a couple of guys plant lights along the runway if the lights go off. You know, the, the backup and the rescue crew in the second and third C-130 can still land. And that's what happens. As the operation is going on with the limo and the jeeps, which already took off towards the old terminal because the element of surprise is key. The second C-130 lands, and immediately when they touch down, the runway lights go off. So thankfully, the crew had thought ahead to place these these lights. Now, so we, we do have Yoni Netanyahu leading the mission, and he actually was wounded. I thought this was pretty cool. Previously in the Six-Day War, he was actually 30% disabled with some nerve damage but he was still promoted to command an anti-terrorism unit and, you know, lead the group. So he is in the limo with his crew and they see guards. This gets pretty exciting, Chris, right? When they see the first two guards. Yeah, it's wait, sorry. Let me just go back. I, yeah, I, go there's, another, there's another parallel. So mm -hmm. when they're flying, they're flying from Israel to Uganda and they're surrounded by sort of people that aren't diplomatically and still aren't diplomatically Hostile territory. Uh, hostile territory. So they have to actually fly the length of the Red Sea like 100 feet over, you know, essentially like getting out of radar. The whole time, these C-130s are flying just right above the water yep. down the length of this Red Sea in order to, to not, because they can't go on the one side of Saudi Can't go Arabia, over Egypt. Yeah, Can't go over Egypt, you know, so. They have to go that, get to Kenya, which is way south. And then cut across Kenya. Right. I thought that was that was crazy when I when they were describing that. Like that was really cool. So one of the things that the documentary was sort of highlighting was that one of the guys you mentioned, the guy who knew who had trained Ugandans, he had sort of known this information of they're going to actually raise the weapon to you, and that's like a form of uh, okay, you can proceed, like a, essentially like a salute, saluting almost, yeah. Uh, but apparently Yoni, dis the way the the way the documentary says is that Yoni disagreed with this and decided to take them out anyways. And like, I'm like, if you know, this guy is knows Ugand like knows the Ugandan practices, like Mitch Rapp would have known all this information and conveyed yep. that be like, listen, dude, yep. do not kill anybody. <laughs> yep. He would have had discipline among his, his troops. Yeah. That's what, that's, I think the one thing I could critique this mission is the, 
sometimes the lack of discipline they had. I mean, it's a crazy mission, so I, I you know, right. I, I would never be able to do it, but just like that, when I'm thinking about like where some of these things went wrong, like for the terrorists, the three things that they did wrong were one, releasing anybody that could give information. So first, they make the first mistake by releasing the single lady. Second, they fail to realize that the airport has been built by Israelis, so probably yeah. they, they were going to have the uh, operation yeah. or the blueprints. And third, they release other people who obviously can give intel. And extended the deadline. Those extra three days were enough to give the Israelis time to prep the mission. Right. So in terms of Israelis, the mistakes, they, this is one of the first mistakes they make is yeah. by not trusting you know, the information that their man gives, order the taking out of the guards. Yeah. And I mean, there. so the movies show this, and I, I again don't know exactly the historical fact. There's a, apparently a really complete book, almost like the anthology on this mission, by Saul David, Operation Thunderbolt, Flight 139 in the raid on Entebbe Airport, the most audacious hostage rescue mission. So, I mean, that would be a really cool book to check out, but at least the movies make it look like this. So they're 100 meters from the terminal. So imagine you still have a football field to go in the middle of the night and you're, you're kind of undercover pretending to be a dictator's uh, general and you see two Ugandan soldiers. Well, the movies make it look like the special ops guys in the lead limousine had that discipline and they waited until they were right up close. They saw the salute and that's when they shot with silenced weapons and they used pist silenced um, pistols to take down the guards. However, it was behind them in the jeeps that the other soldiers with machine guns that were not silenced saw the guys on the ground and decided to still put a bullet in them, thought one of them was still moving and not dead and might call for support. So he shoots with a machine gun that 100 meters from the terminal and they're going 40 kilometers an hour that's what kind of causes them to lose the element of surprise. And so the guards collapse. This breaks the silence of the night. And the convoy has yet to reach the terminal. Now, some say this was enough time. If the terrorists were ready, they could have began the executions. They could have thrown grenades. They could have tripped any explosives they had. Or they could have started shooting. So... The time it takes from when the first bullet is fired without a silencer to get to the terminal, there is a little bit of time, and maybe because of mass confusion, maybe the middle of the night, we don't exactly know, but the terrorists don't indeed start executing hostages right at that moment. So, kind of a miracle, if you will. Yeah. Obviously, you know, that mishap leads to all hell breaking loose, and a huge firefight goes on. They had sort of strategically strategically planned to attack a couple different um, locations they had from information from some passengers they knew that where some of them were sleeping so they knew they, need, they needed to sort of clear both areas uh when they come in obviously the the terrorists are have heard the hijackers have heard this uh gunfire so they're you know sort of going to be ready guns blazing for them i think one of the interesting things is that obviously this plays a key role is that they're not able to sort of get a description of like who is friend or foe mm -hmm. because unfortunately one of the Israelis and uh, in, in one of the documentaries, they, they actually interview his father. One of the Israelis dies and he dies because as soon as he sees the, the people coming, he jumps up thinking that he's jumping up because he's a terrorist. And he's actually, he was jumping up because he's like, yeah, you're here to save me. It's sort of like what they did yeah. when, when Idi Amin came in and, and he unfortunately dies. They got excited, yeah. Yeah, that was that was um that was sad. That was very sad. Yeah. Yeah. But they are able to kill seven of the terrorists. Uh three of them, however, the Palestinians, so they kill the two Germans, uh the three of the other Palestinians, including one of the masterminds, Wadi Haddad, uh, he escapes through some exit of the terminal. But in a minute, 45 seconds, they secure the lounge area. Yeah. They pretty much have the hostages under wraps, but there is a firefight with the Ugandan soldiers in the control tower. And unfortunately, 
trying to create a protective corridor for the hostages to get escorted out back to the runway, Yoni Netanyahu, the leader of the mission, is hit, and he is down. Uh, he will die on uh, the course of the mission and go down a hero in the memory of all Israelis. To, to keep the mission moving, they need to refuel. Because this is really interesting of they didn't have a refueling plan besides being in Entebbe. They were working diplomatic channels to get approval by Kenya to refuel there. That way they can get out of Entebbe quicker. And that intel uh, that agreement only comes through while they're on the ground. So they're blowing up these Russian MiGs, these planes and jets that the Ugandan army has just in case on the way out they're able to scramble. If the Ugandans are able to scramble the, the jets, they won't be able to get out of there safely. So they blow the, the jets. They get the go-ahead to land in Kenya. So they, as quick as they can, take off on the C-130s, got all of the remaining hostages, and it was only 53 minutes after landing, the first C-130 lifts off, including the hostages and, unfortunately, the lifeless body of Yoni Netanyahu. Luckily, only three of the hostages were killed during that, right? Yep, and Yoni was the only soldier. So they get to Nairobi, successfully refuel, and by 3 a.m. while they're in the air, the BBC uh, finally transmits the success of the rescue mission to the world. Yeah, I'd say that's pretty successful. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> it's a wild story. Like I'm think uh, like when I'm reading all this stuff and watching these things, I'm like, how the heck did they pull this off? Right. It's crazy, man. I mean, they were from the time the plane was hijacked. It was six days and twenty two hours. Yeah, because it's like I wonder how many, how much time or if any they were able to practice like the assault on the airport. Because you think of like our raid on Bin Laden. They were able to practice like thousands of times yeah. that raid, and, and it still didn't go off without like you know the helicopter obviously yeah. crashed. You know, it still right. didn't, like, you know practice obviously doesn't you know mean anything when you're on the field. But the fact is that adaptability to, is adaptability more important than preparation. I think so. Well, you know, they're both. I mean, both. they're both. Yeah, but both. that's another thing with rap, right? He has a perfect He's, blend of both. Oh, yeah. He knows everything. Thanks to Stansfield, Kennedy, and the crew, and Marcus, he won't go into a mission unless he, he knows enough, but he also is aware of the areas he doesn't know or when he's going to have to adapt and pulls that off perfectly. So this just seems like a mission. If you told me rap was Yoni right here, minus a few kind of flaws, I would have been like, absolutely. I, I would buy that. Yeah. Like to bring this all back to Mitch Rapp and, and our story, you know. Yeah. This is very much a Mishrap style of a of a mission. I feel I could see him easily, you know, leading this this through. You know, if, so let me ask you: if we were going to say one through ten, I know obviously in separation of power, it's not a hostage rescue attempt. Right. I know it's not an African dictator and all this stuff, but this idea of disguising yourself as you know a, a real general would travel, knowing how to blend in using these limousines, knowing the convoy would be able to get past certain barriers. How likely do you say it is that Vince directly and knowingly was drawing on Operation Thunderbolt with and inspiring him as he crafted the Baghdad scene? I don't know. I'd probably have to say like a seven or an eight because I guess if he, if he really was, because he's, Vince is pretty historically, he'll refer, he'll, he'll reference previous, like real life missions yeah. So, part of me thinks that there's so many parallels between this because I, I was trying to like look for other missions that were like this, and I couldn't find any. I mean, I'm guessing people have thought of like you get in, you pretend, right. and you get out. Like that's you know kind of a common thing. But just the whole idea of dropping a limo, driving in, pretending you're a general, yep. getting and then getting out, like that. It's very very similar so yeah i agree i'm i'm going very likely i think he's just too well versed in this stuff and i think that's the mark of a good author to say i can be inspired by the the real world events but i'm gonna make it my own story and so vince does that and i mean 
history is often more badass than, you know, anyone's imagination, right? So no problem drawing on history and then crafting it to make your own story. So I was a big fan of the scene, both what Vince did and just the fact that we can have these connections and these discussions. Yeah. Good literature. Very good literature. Let's do a little review here, because as you can tell, we've been talking about a lot of different sources. We want to tell you so that you can enjoy these films, and we want to share um, a little bit more about our final thoughts on where we got some of this uh, research from. So, Chris, you referenced the documentary. What exactly was that called so listeners can find it? Right. So if you look on YouTube, there's actually a couple versions of this Nagio documentary. Uh, I watched sort of half of the older version and all of the newest version. It's um, one of the episode nine in one of their seasons. It's free on YouTube. Both of them cover this Entebbe hostage rescue. Both of them are interesting because the older one, they actually have an interview with the the pilot from that flew the, you know, had a gun pointed to his head to flew in the Air, the Air France flight. In the uh, newer one, they interview one, the wife of the guy who's, you know, badge, we, he, we mentioned the badge we had to eat up, as well as a younger guy who actually his mom, we forgot to mention this, his mom got sick and they took her to a hospital. Yes. And... He the he had to make a decision, do I stay, do I go? He ended up yeah. like she wouldn't want me to, to die and actually it's unfortunate as Idi Amin was really pissed off about it. He commanded his forces to go find her as soon as he found out that this happened and then to kill yeah. her. So she disappeared at the Ugandan hospital she went to. Yeah. And in the older one they had an interview with actually Netanyahu. So yeah, I would recommend both of them. They're both, you know, sort of forty five minutes. Um obviously the newer one has better video quality um so yeah and cool animations the national geographic one from situation critical series had some pretty cool mock-ups of the old terminal and some digital recreations of the mission so that was cool yeah and the dramatization wasn't overly cheesy (laughs) you know so yeah those were two of the movies i watched the old one got pretty good reviews on imdb it was around i think a seven uh, it was from 1977. It was originally, I believe, an NBC television premiere. And, you know, we're talking less than a year after the the events. So that one is free on YouTube, and it's just over two hours, which is kind of wild, watching something that old uh, over two hours, and it still had my attention. It has uh, Charles Bronson. He plays one of the generals working with Yoni to lead the mission. And they do a pretty good job, I would say, as far as we know, sticking to the true story. And if you watch this one, it had a really great Idi Amin. The Amin scene of him showing up in the airport, talking to the hostages, was it just sticks with you, his performance there. Shalom, shalom. <laughs> shalom, shalom. <laughs> the newer movie from 2018 called Seven Days in Entebbe it's a much more modern representation of the events. It's still based on a true story, but they are taking a lot more artistic yeah. creativity and, and li- you know, it's much more modern representation. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. And it, it was interesting. Like I see the cover of it. This is before I even knew what was, what the, uh, you know, operation Integrity was about. And on the cover of this movie, I was like, Oh, we should watch this one. It's a new one. And it's got Daniel Brune, the rule. I can't pronounce the German, uh, and Roseman Pike on the cover. I was like, oh, sick. I like both of them. Yeah. And then to kind of find out they're the two German uh, yeah. terrorists. And I was like, oh, great. They're <laughs> going to die. Well, yeah, I I think they did a phenomenal performance. So I oh, really like this one. I went did in not with low good expectations. Reviews. Yeah, I went in with really low expectations because the older one from the 70s, Got great reviews. It was it was it was really lauded, and this one had like a five on IMDb, and people were trashing it. it. Let me it? look up. Uh, let me look up the Rotten Tomatoes. Rotten Tomatoes, I think, was in the fifties. I think it's like it fifty-four the, it, or something. It might have been in the forties. Yeah, people yeah. were crapping on this one, but I really ended up liking it, and I think the comments were about two things. There's this artistic flair. I don't want to say too much, but they're very they try to weave in this interpretive dance scene to the narrative of the story 
and some people felt it interrupted the action. I thought it was artistically done, and I'm not somebody to like all those critics, you know, movies. Anytime critics rave about a movie, I'm like, oh, it's going to be some artistic piece of junk, and I don't really care. But this one, the artsy side of it came through all right for me. The trailer made it look amazing. I thought it was great. I, I don't know why people are trashing, trashing it on Rotten Tomatoes. No, it actually has a 24 on Rotten Tomatoes. Sorry. Are 24. you serious? Yeah, it has a 24. It, that's not a... A 24? So you were mentioning also that it could just be a people... Because that's the fan score. The, you know, people having problems with Israeli-Palestine relations. You know, dramatization of that. I think so. And this one obviously is a success story on the Israeli side. Um it is a rah-rah, defeat the terrorist, you know, kind of movie. So I think people did trash it for that. The other thing is some people felt in the comments they were too sympathetic to the Germans because the Germans over and over in this movie were showing how they didn't want to hurt anybody. They wanted to do it. F- they were raw, right? They wanted to do it for this revolutionary zeal, this communist takeover, support the liberation of the Palestinians. And the movie kind of sympathized with them, like, coming up against real life. Like, you want to sympathize with a cause, but that cause means taking and risking and threatening people's lives. And so the movie is playing with the Germans kind of not regretting what they did, but having to see the consequences of their actions and and maybe questioning themselves. And so maybe people thought they were too sympathetic with the two German terrorists. I don't know. That definitely came through. I could could see that. I could see that. But... I don't know. It's four bucks on, Am- or Apple Amazon rental. Yeah, Amazon yeah. rental, whatever. So I so I don't usually pay to rent movies with how much free stuff you can get. This one was a good night in. This was a good four dollars rent a movie, have a night in. I really liked it. If you really want to dive into Idi Amin, though, I would recommend spending the four dollars on Last King of Scotland. So yep. definitely going to do that. You had to choose. Because actually, it's on Cinemax right now. Oh, but uh, Cinemax got rid of their app, <laughs> so I, I I ended up paying for it because I didn't want to watch it on my laptop. So, anyways, gotcha. Well, for free, I'd recommend the 1977 Raid on Entebbe. That's on YouTube for free, and I I think it does edge out the modern dramatization by just a little. I think it was better in the end. Yes. Cool. Well, this was fun. Something a little different, huh? Yeah, yeah, this was nice. Fun talking about like historical events that you know probably are inspired or rooted in, and very similar to stuff that we talk about with the Mitrab books. So, and I mean, we're just two dudes drinking beer, talking about books on a podcast. We're not really that. Well, you're a scientist. I'm a history teacher. We don't have that much credentials to talk about military operations, but yeah, uh, no. We give it our best shot, and we're just here to have fun, and uh, and hopefully you're learning a little bit of something. Yeah, hope so. Cool. All right, Chris, so what are we doing on the next episode? We're bringing back the author series, right? Right, yes. So we got author series for October. So we got you something a little bit different here. It's nonfiction. We got in touch. Actually, he got in touch with us. It's a former CIA employee who heard us do a review on the Showtime film spy masters back when we did the third option and he was like hey uh you know that movie was about former central intelligence directors and he's like hey i I worked for most of those people so you want me to come talk to you and actually he has a book and it's called the protected and it's a rare look into the professional realm of you know executive protection from personal accounts of someone who has dedicated over 30 years of his life to protecting others so yeah, this guy's like, you know, he protected a bunch of people. Yeah. And, and you know, I was thinking about this interview right when we read Lethal Agent. Remember that weird scene where Mitch becomes a bodyguard for a chapter in Lethal Agent? Yeah, that like, was an interesting scene. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, this guy is the professional who quite literally wrote the book on executive protections and you know personal protection and i'm reading lethal agent and mitch rap is sitting outside a hotel room door guarding what was it like a k-bop star like some korean i think it was supposed star. to be the equivalent of like justin oh, no, it was like bieber, a justin bieber yeah I don't and know where like korean Kristen thing. stewart or something like i don't know yeah. and then rap is supposed to be the bodyguard but he hears him like abusing her in the hotel room 
And, you know, Coleman is like, you can't do anything in the world of personal protection. We don't get involved in domestic disputes or, you know, you know, what goes on inside the hotel room. But Rap's like, F that. He busts in and beats the shit out of this kid. And he's like, don't touch her. (laughs) So I was thinking like, man, being a bodyguard is pretty wild. Even Mitch Rap got to do it, although he's probably not very good at the actual job. Well, he's probably really good at the job protecting but he's not good at interfering if he's protecting a jackass. Right. <laughs> Which most, I feel like m- most people who get protection are probably jackasses. I shouldn't say well, that, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, we talked to Mike Trot, who's a professional in the field, former CIA employee, and he actually is a Mitch Rapp fan. So he tells us a little bit about his favorite Mitch Rapp books. So we'll be bringing that to you next week. Yep. And we want to take this time to thank our patrons, including our special operator, Sherry F., uh, our special agents, uh, who are Matt, Don, Dennis, Peggy, Catherine, Ray, and Jeff. We can't say this enough. Please subscribe, rate, and review us using your favorite podcasting platform. You can find us online at MitchRapPod.com or using our Twitter handle at MitchRapPod, as well as on Insta. And as always... Just let Mitch be Mitch. Just a disclaimer, this podcast is not affiliated with Vince Flynn, Kyle Mills, or Simon & Schuster. But thank you to them for bringing us the wonderful world of rap. And the music soundtrack is Guerrilla Tactics by Raphael Crooks.